It's rending the church right now, right? The LGBTQ issues. What do we do with different sexual desire, um, gay marriage, etc.? And I, you know, this is a tough question. But if both of you are willing to talk about where you currently stand on this issue, I think it's useful to have a free-flowing conversation. Are we able to to do that? Yeah, for sure. Great, Katie. You want to start us out? Um. Yeah, you know, and I, I've been thinking so much about this um, over the last few years because, like you said, it's been such a huge, a huge thing, particularly, you know, right in the complementarian where we've had things like the Nashville Statement and, um, you know, a lot of pastors and churches really trying to define exactly what is mainstream complementarian belief about gender theory and, um, and all these kinds of things. And I think that um, it's it's a difficult thing because, and, and I, and this is another reason I enjoyed reading the book because it kind of helped me crystallize a few more things that I've been trying to figure out for myself. Yeah. And, and, and one, one of, one of the ways I think that, that, um, a lot of times, uh, complimentary what is, is airing is, um, in the, in, in making this an issue that's all encompassing or like you were talking about earlier, Jennifer, about people saying, you know, well, that 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 those group th- that people over there, they're not even Christian because we don't believe the same things about gender, you know. And I think that you see that, too, a lot in the complementarian world, the idea that it's somehow a salvation issue that, you know, um, other more progressive Christians who affirm gay marriage are, you know, um, so far afield that, that we, you know, that one might not consider their faith true. Um, or something like that. Um, and I think that um, it's uh, it's a difficult thing because, again, if, if I'm going by, um, there's two different things that work, right? So the way I was raised was obviously, was very traditional. And so I think the way that I was brought up to think about um, anything that was different from, you know, typical, I guess, American heterosexual marriage is a combination of giving me Bible verses that are actually in the Bible combined with a kind of this is ickiness, right? Mm. Like a kind of just um, more traditional, I guess, previous generational kind of distaste for same-sex relationships or anything that deviates from the norm. Um, But I think, you know, growing up and, you know, meeting more and more people and doing more and more reading, um, I think that I've come to a place now where I think, again, because of certain texts in the Bible um, I am always going to feel theologically uncomfortable with saying that, um, you know, a same-sex marriage relationship is, um, is, you know, as, is, as, as pleasing to, uh, you know, God's original design as a man and woman, if only because I'm looking at Genesis and I'm looking at, you know, male and female 
being created to be together again right complementarianism there's something that's different there there's something that's that's different um in men and women enough that they're needed together to reflect the full image of god and so if i'm in a relationship um, if i was in a marriage relationship with another woman then i would say probably something's going to be missing there there's something that's going to be um not quite um, not the same, that it's not just the same, it's not interchangeable. That's, that's kind of, and I think that because one of the reasons that, you know, the Bible, God gives us certain um, things to do or not do in the Bible, some of it sometimes seems arbitrary, but, you know, some of it seems tied to human flourishing and to helping people live um, lives of peace. And, and I think that um, there is something that is, when when it's done right obviously this is not to say that heterosexual marriage is like a magic bullet and because clearly things go wrong all the time because people are sinful but i think that um as a kind of gender essentialist more complementarian person i would say that that would be the ideal that's the ideal given would be man and woman together however i think that um we can't just stop there, even complementarians, we can't stop there and say, so anything else, um, if you're in any, if you're any other kind of person or if you're in any other kind of relationship, then that means that, you know, um, we can't have fellowship with you. We can't show love to you, you know, um, because the reality shows us that it's not that simple. And I think that um, a lot more Christians should read about, you know, things like the cases that you mm. give that Butler talks about in the queer theory chapter about people are like the woman you described at your church, you know, people who are not, it's not that simple for them. It's not, you know, your typical woman, your typical man. And I think that the church, um, even the complementarian church can affirm and love a person who doesn't fit neatly into the binary without having to go all the way to saying biological sex is an illusion, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's not like it's either or. We can't, you know, we it's not like we have to be Judith Butler or we have to say, you know, no, intersex people don't exist, mm -hmm. this, you know, I mean, we don't, there, there's a middle ground. And I think even, and I, and one of the most interesting things that I've seen developing lately, um, are, is, um, are things like the spiritual friendship movement, mm -hmm. right? So that you have some Christians who are gay Christians, but who nevertheless read the biblical text and go, okay, what I see here, if I, you know, if I take these verses that say, hey, it's not okay to live a homosexual lifestyle. If I take these verses as seriously as I'm taking these other verses over here, I don't think, I, I feel like I don't need to live in accordance with my desires. And so that's where you get people like Sam Albury or people like Wesley Hill who are living, you know, um, as celibate gay Christians. And, you know, and that's an interesting disjunct for some people. I remember talking to um, my mom about Wesley Hill and how I was excited to read his book. And I remember, um, you know, her as a, from a previous generation having a lot of discomfort with the idea that a person could be comfortable with being same-sex attracted but not living a lifestyle that embodies that and that you know i'm not seeing any problem with that and she's very uncomfortable with that because for her temptation in some ways equals sin but i'm not i don't believe that's true and so you know it's it's one of these things that's developing you know i had no idea until a few years ago that there were people like wesley hill or people like sam albury who are you know saying i believe these verses in the bible but i also know what i feel so what do i do now mm -hmm. how do i live my life 
And I think that in the complementarian church, we need to move light years along the path, particularly towards affirming people in that situation, because a person living that life, making that particular conscious choice is choosing to live a single life always. And that is such a, um, it can be such a solitary, isolating road that those people need the church to be their family. The church is supposed to be our primary family anyway. Um, and I think that that's, um, so I guess that's, what I, if I'm going to choose, if I'm going to, you know, in a sentence summarize my current position, it would be that I definitely don't think that, um, you know, my theology is never going to lead me to embrace every new permutation of gender or sex and say whatever anyone wants to be, however anyone wants to live, everybody come in, you can all be part of the church in a, in a way that's completely affirming. You know, no one's ever going to question whatever you choose to do with your body in a sexual way. Um, but at the same time, I think the church needs to recognize, even and especially the complementarian church, that for every person it's not as simple as mm-hmm. a male-female binary and that we need to be showing love and we need to be showing acceptance to people who, um, you know, whose parents had to try to choose for them. I mean, you know, the idea that you would have to choose for your baby or not choose or like, you know, it's, it's so painful and it's such a thing that, um, you know, that I feel like a person in that situation needs more love, not less. That person needs more support, not less support. And, um, and so that's, that's a kind of, that's kind of where I am. And and it, and it has, you know, it has evolved over time just because the more you, this, I feel like we need the graphic. The more you know, right? <laughs> the more that you know um, about life and the more uh, the more you learn. And also the more I've just thought through my theology. That's one thing that I, I really have appreciated about doing the podcast is that it's pushed me in the years that I've been doing it to really think about my complementarian theology. What is it? Is it like everybody else who's complementarian? What, you know, what do I actually believe? And it's pushed me away from simply, you know, going, I choose this framework, everything about it. You know, um, and instead to have thoughtful, considered positions and um, and to really think through ideas of what does it mean to love a person, even if you don't um, feel like theologically that the way they live their life is OK. Things mm-hmm. like that. So that's kind of how I'm, I'm feeling right, right now. Great. Thank you, Jennifer. What do you think? Yeah. Thank you. I mean, what you just described is uh, has a lot in common with the Roman Catholic position right now, um, which is that the Roman Catholic position is that God has either created or it's just part of the order of the world now that some people are homosexually oriented and then what they are called to is celibacy. My, um, I understand that position. My, my position, because I'm such a Lutheran, like it's so deep in my, uh, bottom of my soul is that the idea that there's an original order or a relationship that could, be closer to the image of God is in Lutheran theology is so the idea is that that's so polluted. It's so fallen that we can't even begin to have any sort of pride in saying, Oh, I'm celibate. Oh no, I'm in a gay relationship. Like that, that's a hierarchy or that I'm in a heterosexual relationship. So that's better than being in a homosexual relationship that, that anything that makes us feel as if the choice that we made is what gives us value that 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 that's a dangerous position because it it makes us feel like we're achieving our merit. And so that's sort of like a theological position that's separate from the gender issue. But I think the way that that plays out is that there's this sense that we are that our value comes from God 
And so then when we're trying to make rules about marriage, it's not about whether our marriage is holy or not, because it's not. Um, in fact, Luther said that one of the great things about marriage is that when your wife is yelling at you and the house is a mess and the kids are screaming, that's when you realize that you are nothing <laughs> and that you're completely dependent. <laughs> marriage brings you to your knees. That's why, that's why it's a good for humans. Um, it doesn't help us achieve blessing. And in that way, um, he said that, that monks who are celibate, who think that they're more pure or holy than fathers are, are wrong and they're deluded. And so like this idea that, that re- human relationship helps us remember how needy we are of God's grace. I think that that's, a, that's just a really different take on, on what relationships do. When it comes to actual gender, one of the things that that was hard for me is that I, when I was working um, through my whole gender theory, is that I realized that my personal view about gay marriage had to change. Because my first, my, when I was a little girl, there was a lesbian couple that lived next door to me. And I was like four years old. And um, my mom asked me, she's like, you know, Elsie and and her wife, um, do you have any questions about that? And I'm like, no, they're just people that live next door. And my mom told me the myth of Aristophanes, because that's the kind of house I grew up in. And she's like, (laughs) she's like, you know, maybe Kevin, we are two. And then we get torn apart when we're born and we're always looking for other half. And for some of us, our other half is female. And for some of us, our other half is male. And that's why there are some people that are lesbians and some people that are straight. Wait a minute. Didn't Plato shoot that down, though? Come on. Totally did. He did. But, but, you know, I'm four. So I was like, okay, all right. And so I just grew up with this idea of we all fall in love. We all have um, a soulmate. And... You know, some people's soulmate is of the same sex and some people's different. And and that's that's just the way it is. So when I read Judith Butler, one of my first questions was, if biological sex is not real, then why are some people gay? Like, if it's all cultural, why do we have this countercultural element? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. and, um, and what I started finding as I was walking around the ELCA, which was divided on this issue of gay marriage, is that most of the people that were against gay marriage were gender essentialist and felt like God wanted heterosexuality. And most of the people that supported gay marriage were also gender oh, essentialist. Gender essentialist, yep. Right. They're like, some people love women and some people love men. And I thought, well, what if, what if it's not that there's women and men? <laughs> right. Why are we attracted this way? And um, and I was talking to a really brilliant theologian. Her name's Mary Lowe. She teaches at uh and at Augsburg College, and she was dealing with these issues too. And a few people were saying to her, um, "You're just muddying the waters, right? Like, like at least they're they're being accepting of gays and lesbians. Let's not ask them why. Let's not. Let's just let it go." And she's like, "No, we gotta we gotta keep talking about it." Mm-hmm. And and so where I am now, because I do believe it's a quandary, is that I've come to this Lutheran view of our relationships don't save us. And so what we want is we want relationships that are not holy because we can't have those. We want relationships that are healthy mm. and support our our political and social communities. And that it seems to me that where we are right now is we, if there are people that want to share their lives together, 
in a monogamous way, because I think monogamy is, is really key to, to social health. I, I just don't believe the human heart can be polygamous. Um, though I re- recognize that like, that's a sort of a faith statement, but, um, there's people that they want to commit their lives to the kind of friendship that marriage is and the kind of child rearing that often marriage is that we should help and support them for a lot of the same reasons that Katie said, because these are people that probably aren't getting a lot of support from the outer world. And none of our marriages are holy. Um, and so what we just really want to strive for is, is healthy, um, as healthy relationships. And I think that in our current day, that, that includes gay marriage. The reason why I wanted to hear um, everybody's position on this, obviously because of the way that this is really causing difficulty for the church, um, but also because of my students. You know, um, I've, as you have been teaching the last 20 years, Jennifer, I'm sure you've noticed the sea change, right, in what your students are coming into your classroom saying um, now versus even 10 years ago. Yes. Um, and you're having a larger number of students who are just, well, now the big thing is I'm, I'm, they'll say I'm bisexual, you know, and there's a part of me that I'm, well, there's a large part of me that's very concerned that gender fluidity as a concept, um, particularly the sort of like my, my desires, I can just sort of figure out which, what I, what my desires are. And it might be this one day and it might be this the next day, you know, the kind of postmodern kind of way of being is not doing our young people a service because it's creating just so much confusion for them where there need not be confusion or where the advice might be better to just wait and see. Why do you have to decide right now? You know? um, And, and since we, I think that the three of us agree that sex outside of marriage is not advisable. Am I safe in saying that? That's, right. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. All right. So, so why do does somebody who's eighteen have to decide, you know, what their sexuality is? Right. This and is something I'm really concerned about. Their identity. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So, what do you think about that? I mean, what do we do to help students, young people, inside of the church, to wait and um, pray. And also I'm a little bit concerned with putting the idol of, of autonomy, right? Like I get to decide who I am before God. Just wondering about that. It is, it's an interesting thing. And I, I think I've thought about it more too, as, as my, you know, my, my daughter's getting older and, you know, thinking about how, you know, how am I going to talk to her about all this stuff as she gets bigger? Um, and I, I think you're right. I think that it is, um, there seems to be this just intense kind of cultural pressure on younger and younger people to, to make these decisions. And, you know, but young people change so much from day to day. Like you said that, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not the same at 14 as they are at 16 and a half. Or, you know, I mean, it, and it changes all the time. And, and one thing I, I talk through with my students a lot, at least my literature students too, is that, they seem very bound by the idea of um, sexual orientation as, as, as fixed or as necessarily a lifestyle choice. And so we always have to have conversations about, well, hold on for a second, you know, at least in the early modern period, you know, it's not like you were straight or you were gay. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for mo- you know, I mean, because they'll say things like, wasn't Shakespeare gay? And I'm like, well, hold on. <laughs> 
They want to talk about, wasn't Shakespeare gay? Because some of the sonnets are written to a man and you know the others are written to a woman and we have to talk about one the speaker's not the same as the author right all this stuff but also we always have to talk about how your current conception of this as you're straight or you're gay or now you're bisexual or whatever you know there's all these different categories now you know that um at least for in some other time periods in history you know maybe you're a man having sex with men and maybe sometimes you have a sex with a woman but you're not that's not a lifestyle choice you're not telling everyone now i'm this you know, and, and I'm always going to be this, you know, um, and I do think that now it's, you know, be, probably because of, of queer theory, it's getting more and more, um, there, there's more and more of that fluidity, but, but still with the labels though. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whereas in the early modern period, you might've had someone who was, you know, with both men and women, and that was what they felt like doing at the time. And maybe now you have some young people who sometimes feel attracted to men, sometimes to women, but they feel the need to label it and go, and I'm bisexual. Mm -hmm. That is who I am. It is an innate part of my identity. And, you know, and I do, I think that it's, it's a problem because they're, they're kind of putting boundaries around themselves or they're, um, they're wanting to make identity claims about desires, which can often be fleeting mm -hmm. or changeable with time. And, uh, you know, I hadn't thought about that till you said it, but I do, I do think it's hard because how do you, without making them feel infantilized, without making a young person feel like they're, you know, he or she's being condescended to, how do you say something like, okay, but you might change your mind, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, or are you sure about this? You know, um, particularly because so often they're making these decisions or they're they're saying these things at a time when, you know, we would all agree. And I think a lot of people would agree that they shouldn't be having sex anyway right. with any gender of person. You know, I mean, when, you know, I just I get very worried when I hear about, you know, I mean, or and particularly I get really worried when I hear about young kids who are what, years before puberty who are already wanting to transition. Yes. And, you know, it makes me very worried because. You know, we don't trust kids to make really any other I know. decisions for themselves. I know. If we're going to tell them what to eat and when to go to bed, I don't think we should let them choose at four that they want to be the complete opposite biological sex and start some kind of physical process to make that happen. I know. And, but, but it's such a, a kind of cultural idea now that it's it's so prevalent that I think a lot of kids see it and go, well, I don't always love being a girl. Maybe I'm a boy. And I'm thinking maybe, or maybe you're just a different kind of girl. Exactly. And that's okay. Exactly. Like, you know, and you know, the research yeah. I do is in biotechnology, a lot of enhancement technology. And as soon as you start talking about putting surgical changes to a young person's desire, I really start getting mm. very, very nervous, right? Um, because desires are so changeable. You're just like, uh, well, for instance, when I was, you know, 12, I wanted to be a boy. I'm super mm -hmm. glad. Okay. I'm super glad that my parents didn't, you know, take that seriously. Right? And I just, I'm a tomboy. And, you know, and I don't know, I just feel like so many of my students, and I've had this conversation with them where I just want to say, why do you have to decide this right now? Why can't you wait? And I don't know how to do that without condescending to them, like you're talking, um, Katie. But when I, I feel like there was a kind of a protection that the church afforded um, against my own love of my own personal freedom. Does this make any sense? Yeah, no, I think so. And I, you know, I, I think I would have experimented if, if the culture was more like it is now. And I don't like that, that I would have been like that. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that one way or the other about gay marriage in that particular comment. I'm just saying for me personally, um, it has been better that it's worked out the way it's worked out, where I had that safeguard in place. 
Jennifer, what do you think about that? Yeah, I don't know what I think because this is such an interesting issue because I think, I mean, one of the things that I also hear with my students is this question of wanting to, I mean, and this might not be, this not be, might not be true. This is just a hypothesis, but that they want to be real. They want to be authentic. Authentic. That's the big thing. And so when you have this, um, you feel like you need to make a statement about your identity because you want to be true to yourself. And I wonder if part of, and, and I don't know that this is true, but I wonder if part of this is that they want to be loved so badly oh. and almost a litmus test. Like, will you still love me? If oh. I this? Oh, well, okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. And that they might not even realize they're doing it consciously, right? That it might be something like I have this inside of me. If I say this out loud and say it's real, will I still be part of the community? And, and I don't I mean, I don't know, because I think for some for some young people, I mean, I know some young people who, for them, their gender is so real to them. We were just talking to this in my women's philosophers class, and they like they feel like they're in their wrong body. And that raises all kinds of questions about the body and the soul that as a philosopher, I want to get into, you know, <laughs> like what is. What is your soul? Like, what, what does this mm-hmm. mean? Um, in what way do we have control over our bodies versus we are our bodies? But I can't even ask those questions as a philosopher until they feel safe. And so how do good, I good point. feel safe? And you know what? No matter what I do, if they live in a culture, which I think we, we live in, where they don't feel safe, where they're constantly afraid they're, they can't ever get to that place to ask those harder questions. Um, so so I don't really have an answer, mm-hmm. except that I have also noticed that um, this need to proclaim one's sexual identity. Um, and, I, and, and, I, and I also sometimes think there's so many parts of our identity. Why are you clinging so hard to that one? But I also know because I work at a... Um, a university, which is a 50% women of color, that for a lot of women, that's how race felt for a long time, that they would mm-hmm. say I'm African-American and people would say, well, so what? Like, why do you have to name that so much? And, and the answer is because nobody accepts it. Nobody, nobody thinks it matters. And I want to say it matters. And so it's about mattering and it's about being loved. And mm-hmm. I think that the, what the role of the church has to be right now is to somehow constantly keep in the forefront you are loved you are a child of god Mm -hmm. at the same time that doesn't mean that all ethical rules are equal like we can still say you have to be careful Mm -hmm. we don't want you cutting yourself we don't want you doing drugs we don't want you in dangerous sexual relationships um but not because Mm -hmm. if you do those things you're not loved but because if you do those things you are you're hurting yourself or you're hurting others, which is a really different conversation yeah. than saying you're not loved or you're not accepted or you're not a real Christian. So I feel like the conversation has to be changed. That doesn't give us an answer necessarily, but it changes the way we talk about it. Well, that's interesting. So I don't know. I think we would agree. No, that's that's very helpful. There is sec- there's such a thing as sexual sin. Right? The question of yeah. which sins right. are 
sexual <laughs> oh sin, right? Right now, right, that's a tough question, right? Sexual dysfunction where women are just finally coming out with how much abuse there is. I mean, we cannot possibly say that there's not sexual sin, oh, uh, right? And I think, I think one of the questions is, is that how yes. do we, how do we figure out what things are healthy and good? And and part of the problem is, is that 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 mm-hmm. doesn't change as science changes that certain things that we might have thought were unhealthy we no longer think are unhealthy um and so i'm mm-hmm. always like i believe absolutely that we need rules and that we need things that that keep us in healthy relationship and i mean Oh my gosh, sometimes I have students that talk about sadomasochism as if like it's just a personal preference. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like, oh. no, no, it's not. And so, <laughs> yeah, oh well. Like, I think rules, and I think that there's a smart way of looking at things. But I'm also really well aware that a lot of the rules were anti woman for a long time, that they were anti female pleasure that they were. And and so how do we keep the conversation open without saying everything goes, but also acknowledging that at least there have been times in our culture where the rules have been really misogynistic. Mm-hmm. So that's the philosopher. Yeah. It's like, whatever you say, yes, and, or <laughs> no, but. Um. Of course, of course. <laughs> I really liked what you said um, in, uh, which, and I should have said this back at the beginning, I like the way that each chapter was structured where you were looking at merits and also possible drawbacks of each different view. I love that. But one of the things that I liked um, that you mentioned in the queer theory chapter is that there are feminists who take issue with queer theory in part because it seems to say that there's no way to have any standard for what's healthy and good, right? And that mm-hmm. it really does seem to be often based on purely on personal autonomy, like Christina was talking about, you know, what I feel like is right for me is good. Right. And objectively it's an good ab- because I've chosen it. Right. Like, so, you know, you're in this relationship and you say, well, I don't mind that he hits me. In fact, I enjoy it. And, and just every single part of my feminist body says, no, like, <laughs> enjoy it. That's not a good yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and I think it and it feeds into so much like we were talking about before, you know, you, if you have how much autonomy should we give very young people who want to make these drastic changes, you know, um, as a parent, that's, you know, that's something that you're if you're there to guard your child and try to help raise your child to flourish. On the one hand, if the child is saying, I feel like I could really flourish if I make these drastic physical alterations to my body, you know, I don't, you know, it seems like if the only standard we have is personal autonomy, then we would say, okay, cool. Exactly. But, you know, it, it seems like that, and, and especially, you know, if we're thinking biblically, scripture seems clear that it, scripture's not handing us a, a personal ethic of personal autonomy is the highest goal. <laughs> you know, it's the best thing you can have is to do what you want yeah. and for everyone to support you in whatever you want to do. And so at, at the very least as Christians, we have to have a little bit of pause, I think, about the idea that personal autonomy is the highest good. Well, right. And I think that's probably the biggest problem facing the church. And this reason why we have these, these many divisions is because that American ideal of personal autonomy being the highest and best thing is coming into conflict, right? Uh, with biblical truth. Mm-hmm. 
And we have to face that squarely, you know, wherever we stand on the particular issue about gay marriage or whatever. It's a problem that we idolize um, sex, for one thing, but also idolize personal autonomy as the highest good. That's a problem. And if we don't start there, we're never going to help our young people. I, think I, agree. I agree with that, too. And that service to neighbor has to be the, the, the thing that we're called highest to do. I mean, one thing that problematizes the question of child autonomy is how much parent autonomy we've given in the past. Mm. So that we have this unfortunate legacy of, of intersex children that were surgically altered um, up until 2005. Yes. And so mm, yeah. we, uh, we allowed all of these parents, or we didn't allow these parents, we forced, and by we, I mean the American medical establishment, I mean, really forced parents to make decisions mm -hmm. about children's body that were not health-based. They were based on making sure their child fits into a cultural standard. Yes. And so we have, yes, for we sure. have that. And so then when you have somebody who says, well, why is it okay that you you know, alter this child's genitalia because their doctor wanted to, but I'm not allowed to alter mine because it's my choice. So like the whole question about biotechnology just needs to be explored in general, I think. Mm -hmm. It does. And it does. I sure don't have any answers on that whatsoever. <laughs> That's a tough question. It really but, is. But I have lots of questions. I'm really good at asking questions, but. Well, I really appreciate that about you <laughs> yeah. and all philosophers that are good, right? Is that I love the way that the emphasis that you put on the dialectic. Let's have the conversation. Let's not stop having the conversation. That's what we're all about here at the Christian Feminist Podcast, I think. That's one of the great things, right? Yeah. Keep it going. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, that's good. Are we Are we ready to wrap it up? So this is really yeah. interesting, and um, I really I didn't know how we could possibly talk for more than an hour, and and it was really easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, good. I will go ahead and uh, wait. We have a final segment though, the passing on segment. Is there anything you would like to pass on, uh, Katie? Yes. So um, what I'm passing on tonight is earlier in in this episode I mentioned um, the ratings of Wesley Hill. Um, and so uh, what I'm going to recommend tonight are um, two of his books. And the first one is his first book. It's been around for a while, um, I think. Um, it, but that was his first book called Wash and Waiting, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality. Um, that was kind of his introductory book. But then also he has a more recent text, which I also mentioned earlier, and um, that's called Spiritual Friendship, Finding Love in the Church as a Celibate Gay Christian. And um, I'm going to recommend both of those books. So honestly, anything he writes is fantastic. Um, we did a, uh, there was a Christian Humanist Profiles um, interview with him about a book that he wrote about Paul and the Trinity. Um, that's also mm -hmm. really great. So um, for anybody who I would say, particularly for anyone who, you know, has been brought up in a more traditional or, or complementarian context or is in that context now and wants um, to expand the horizons um, and get a different perspective on what it's like to be a person who might subscribe to the same um, kind of, com or not complementarian, same conservative sexual ethic, but who nevertheless is experiencing feelings that are not congruent with that particular theology. I would definitely recommend um, these books by Wesley Hill, Washington Waiting, and uh, Spiritual Friendship. Great. Jennifer, do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Yeah, I have two. One is a book by Alison Dumont Dreger, and it's called The Medical Invention of Sex. And it is a, a biology book that goes through the history of biology and the way uh, sex has been defined by the American Medical Association over the last 200 years. 
it's really fascinating and really interesting. And, and you kind of, it, it will change your perspective on, on biology. Um, it just will. And, and, and it will open you up to, to new understanding. So I think it's really good. The other one I have is a, a web page by Megan DeFranza. And her name's Megan, M-E-G-A-N. And DeFranza is D-E-F-R-A-N-Z-A. Um, she's, a, she's a conservative Christian who started exploring the question of sex and gender roles when she found herself to have a, a theological calling that didn't fit in her church's understanding of what it means to be a woman. But when she was doing her master's in divinity, she started to get interested in the question of where intersex people fit into her church structure. So she has a documentary that she's made, and she talks a little bit about it on her website, where she talks to mostly teenage girls who have never got their periods, who found out that they have XY DNA, um, all of whom are conservative Christians, and who are trying to figure out what spiritual gifts mean when you have a body that is really intersex. And it's really beautiful. It's incredibly, she has a lot of Bible passages um, where she talks about what what God has to say to people. Um, and it, it, she's just has done a lovely job of really focusing on that issue of, of the intersex body. Those are uh, excellent recommendations. I, I'm going to um, recommend Kathleen Norris's The Cloister Walk um, because it's one of the best books that I've ever read that deals with the issue of sexuality when it's in a, a celibate uh, context, like the monks who she, the Benedictine monks that she was visiting. And I just love the way that she talks about sexuality there. I think our vision for sexuality tends to be too restricted to genitalia. And it's kind of nice to read something that talks about sexuality more broadly. I think that's a useful part of this conversation. Yeah, I agree. That's a wonderful book. Yeah, great. Well, thank you both, Katie and Jennifer. Thank, and thank you, listeners, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes, or for this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Jennifer, ha- Jennifer Hockenberry Dragseth and Katie Grubbs, I'm Christina Bieber Lake. Tune in two weeks for an episode on Leia Organa. Until then, in essentials unity, and non essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>